You're listening to the RUF at UT podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. This comes from 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1-15. through 15. <clears throat> David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the Ark of God, and Ahio went before the Ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the Ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. We have been going through the life of David in RUF this semester, and we're trying to explore... What, is, what does it look like to have an ordinary spiritual life? Like, what does just the normal, ordinary Christian spiritual life look like? And this passage, really more than any others, directly addresses that, I think. And so to, kind of, to set this up, I wanted to tell you a, a story. It's a true story about a man that had knee surgery 50 years ago. And he told this story, uh, I read it in a book when he was like in his 70s. He was reflecting on his time when he was 25 years old. 50 years ago, he had surgery on his knee. And so it was, it was um, interesting to me because I had knee surgery this past summer. And so just to, for my surgery, I feel like I had ACL replacement and I was back on my feet in like a week. It was Kind of nothing. But uh, for him, 50 years ago, surgery, I guess, was not as technologically up to date as, as it is now. And so he said in, his, in this book that he was left with this massive scar. He was in the hospital for a month, like with a long, painful recovery. But the surgeon went in there, fixed his knee, and during the month that he was in the hospital recovering, he contracted a staph infection that had been kind of going around the hospital. So even though he uh, uh, was only recovering from his knee for a month, 
this infection stayed with him for a year and a half. 18 months dealing with this staph infection. He lost 20 pounds over the course of a year and a half. He said that these like really massive boils would show up up and down his back. And he'd have to go to the hospital every three or four days to get them lanced and treated, which is a fun image and a fun word to say. Uh, getting his gross boils lanced. Um, really gross. Uh, but he talks about this. And, and some of you who are uh, doing medical stuff may know this uh, term, but he talks about this as an iotrogenic illness. It's a technical term, iotrogenic illness, which basically means while you're in the process of being fixed or dealt with for a physician for one thing, you get sick with another thing. And the reason I want to bring this up is because I think it's very possible to contract a spiritual iotrogenic illness. That you can be a part of Christian stuff, be a part of ministries, and be a leader in ministry, and be a part of Christian religious culture, and uh, regularly sit down and read your Bible with your foamy coffee and Instagram it, and uh, you can be a part of all of that, and really without even knowing it, get infected with a lethal spiritual disease. What would that even look like for you to have a lethal spiritual disease? And how would you know if you had it? Well, that's what I want to try to answer tonight. We're going to look at two big ideas tonight. We're going to look at the diagnosis of fatal spirituality and then the prescription for healthy spirituality. Two ideas. The uh, the diagnosis of a spirituality that has gotten sick, diseased, fatal. And uh, then the prescription for healthy Spirituality. So let's, let's talk first of how can we diagnose whether or not your spirituality has, has gotten uh, fatal. Well, to kind of catch you up to speed, where we last left David last week, a lot has happened because we're, we're skipping ahead uh, lots of chapters. We're now into 2 Samuel, not just 1 Samuel. Uh, Saul has died in 2 Samuel chapter 5. King David has been throned as the king. He's finally on the throne as a king. He's established Jerusalem as his capital city. And his first order of business, you see there in verse, chapter, in verse 1 and 2, is for him to get 30,000 men and go and get this thing called the Ark of God and bring it into his capital city, Jerusalem. Now, the Ark of God was basically just like this wooden box that was covered in gold, and it was where the tangible presence of God was. Wait, I thought God was omnipresent. Isn't God everywhere? Yes, but this was the one like geographic spot on planet Earth where his presence was said to have dwelled in like concentrated form, like the immediate, tangible, concentrated presence of God. And David said, uh, I want that in my city because for 30 years it's just been sitting in some guy's house in obscurity, totally forgotten about. So he goes and gets 30,000 people, and they go to this dude's house, they get it, and then it says in verse 5 that basically like there's this parade heading back to Jerusalem, and they're singing songs, and they're playing all these musical instruments, and they're dancing. I just picture like Bonnaroo. It's just like this crazy, hippie, religious, musical like festival moving to Jerusalem. Now, uh, along the way, They've put the ark on this cart, and it's being carried by these oxen. And they come upon this rough patch in the ground, and one of the oxen stumbles. And the cart jostles, 
and the ark begins to slide off. And there's this dude who's helping to oversee the transportation of this thing called Uzzah, or Uzzah, however you say that. And he reaches out to steady the ark because the ark's going to fall and hit the ground and get dirty. And so he reaches out his hand to stop it from doing that. And look at verse uh, 7. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. So like the record scratches, the music stops, the parade kind of comes to a stop, and here's this dead dude on the ground, and everybody just like panics and starts to leave. And so here's the question, what do we do with this? Like here's this good guy with really good intentions, seemingly, trying to get the ark from not falling onto the ground, and God kills him on sight? Like, couldn't God have any, like, slack? Like, cut him some slack? Like, this guy had good intentions. Like, what do we do with this? Uh, I think that that you're, you're not entirely honest if you're not disturbed by this passage. This is a pretty disturbing passage. I mean, David is disturbed in this passage. Look at verse uh, 8. It says, David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. Look at 9. David was afraid of the Lord that day. So, okay, we need to figure out what just happened there and why Uzzah died. Hold that question in your head, and let's take a quick commercial break. Let's just say you were to come up here and slap me across the cheek. What would, ha- what would the consequences be? Um, not much. Like, you would not really get in trouble. It may be a little awkward. Um, I would probably be embarrassed, and I'd try to hold in the pain at some level. But in terms of your consequences, nothing would really happen to you. Now, what if you did that same act? You, you backslapped. What if you tried to backslap uh, our new chancellor, Chancellor Davenport? My guess is things would be a little different. Uh, you would probably get arrested. You go to prison, you would get kicked out of school. Um, much different consequences for the same act. Now, what if you slapped our president? Some of you might want to, but let's just say that you slapped our president. If you, sla- if you tried to slap our president, the Secret Service would just shoot you on sight. They wouldn't even ask questions. They would just take you out. And so if, if you take this one little act... One little slap, and you kind of work it up through the hierarchy of authority and people of importance. As you're seeing, the consequences get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And so here's the question. What happens if you're to slap God? Uh, Here's someone with infinite authority, infinite importance. What happens when you just do one little sin against God? One little white lie, one little betrayal of him. Even if it's just a little slap. It doesn't matter. Because of who God is, that means that now the consequences are infinitely enormous. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to picture, uh, pretend this is a, uh, some math class, and uh, along the stage here is a spectrum from positive infinity, here's zero, and then negative infinity that way. So you're seeing the spectrum here? God would be way down on this end of the spectrum, infinitely holy, infinitely good, assuming that the spectrum represents uh, goodness. God's over here, infinitely good, infinitely righteous, infinitely perfect. And because we've sinned against him, we find ourselves way down on this end of the spectrum. Sinful, culpable, guilty. (laughs) 
perfect microphone placement. Thanks, Ben. And so there's this infinite gap between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of us. And here's what happens with Uzzah. Let's go back to Uzzah. Uzzah's, Uzzah had adopted a spiritual outlook that was absolutely fatal because he failed to grasp two realities. He failed to grasp the holiness of God and how sinful he was. In other words, what he did was he minimized God's holiness and he maximized his goodness. Let me show you where I get this from. How did he minimize God's goodness? Well, early in the Bible, if you were to uh, flip over to the book of Numbers, which I know all of y'all are familiar with, in Numbers chapter 4, God has laid out his instructions on how he wants the ark of God transported. And in that chapter, you will find that the ark should be covered with a cloth. It should be carried by uh, priests that were Levites, secondly. And you shouldn't touch it. The ark had these uh, big rings on the side of it. So you could slide these poles in it and just kind of put it on your shoulder. And so four people could carry the thing without touching it. And Uzzah, who is responsible for overseeing the transport of this ark, violated all those rules. Didn't cover it. Didn't have Levites carry it. And uh, put it on an ox cart instead of put on the shoulder thing. He, in other words, looked at every one of God's standards and said, optional. God's not, God doesn't need and have to tell me what to do in every single situation. God's not that holy. God's not that important. So he minimizes God's holiness. And then he also maximizes his own goodness. Because as that ark begins to slide off the cart... He just reaches out his hand to catch it and protect it because in his mind he's thinking if this thing falls to the ground and hits the mud, it's going to get dirty, it's going to get defiled, it's going to get contaminated. And he doesn't realize that the thing that actually will contaminate it is him. That he's more defiling, more contaminated than the ground is. But he doesn't believe that. He thinks he's a, he's a good guy helping God out. He's, he's you know, God's gift and, and his protection. So you see what he's doing. He has adopted a spiritual outlook that minimizes God's holiness and maximizes his own goodness. And that is the diagnosis of fatal spirituality. You know that your spirituality is diseased and sick when those two realities are happening. When the goodness and the infinite perfection and holiness of God becomes minimized and your understanding of yourself and your own goodness becomes maximized. It was about six years ago I was sitting down with a student that wanted to um, come on into a leadership position within RUF. He was serving in another ministry, and he wanted, I guess he wanted to transfer his membership into ours. And so I just sat down with him over coffee one time to ask him, like, why do you want to be a leader with us? Like, why do you want to do, why do, you want to do this? And I don't remember all the details of this conversation, but here's roughly what he said. <clears throat> well, I'm already a leader on this campus. I know a ton of people, and I have a lot of influence here. Uh, I've led like four different Bible studies, so I don't need any training. In fact, I'm probably already a better Bible study leader than any Bible study leader you have already in place. Uh, I am uh, a whole lot more spiritually mature than the leaders that I've seen involved in RUF. And on top of all that, I want to write a book. I've, um, I've been reading a lot of Christian books lately, and I want to write a book that has tons of footnotes in it that reference all these different books that I've been reading. And I, and I heard this, and I, really, I, don't, I don't remember exactly what I said to him, but it was something like, everything that you just said makes me want to vomit. 
And because here's this young man who's just completely blind to how arrogant he is, how self-absorbed he is, how self-serving he is, how showy he is, had completely no idea. He just thought he was God's gift to that campus. And we had to have a really hard conversation for me to look at him and say, no, you cannot be an RUF leader, precisely because you think that you're the jam. You, you, um, uh, the fact that you think that you're so overqualified for ministry shows that you have disqualified yourself from ministry. But that's the same kind of thing that's going on in Uzzah. It is a fatal spiritual sickness where God's holiness, God's goodness is minimized and his own goodness is maximized. So what, is, what does this look like actually in our lives, though? Here's what I think this looks like practically. It's you believing deep down, you know, I'm not like that bad. Okay, so I'm not like the greatest person on this campus, but I am not the worst. I work hard. I try hard. I try to be nice to people. I try to make good decisions. I care about religious stuff like RUF. I go to Bible studies and things like this. Like, there are a lot worse off people on this campus than me. That's the mindset. And what you're doing in that moment is you're forming an identity about yourself based off of comparing yourself to other people. I'm not like my roommates and how wasted they get all the time. I'm okay. Uh, My relationship is not like that relationship, which is absolutely terrible, and so therefore I'm okay. I don't talk to my parents the way she talks to her parents, so... I'm okay. I'm not a workaholic that cares like so much about my grades, like those crazy GLS weirdo people. Um, so I'm okay. I love you, GLS. But you see what I'm saying? It's it's the um, I am okay based off of the standard of other people. And when you do that, when other people become the standard, that means you have minimized God's standards for yourself and you've maximized your goodness. It's fatal. It's fatal. It's a spirituality that's sick. What if you were to actually use God as the standard for how you saw yourself and compared yourself to him? It would be crushed. You would be crushed. You cannot compare yourself to infinite perfection and walk away feeling good about yourself. Because you would have no leg to stand on. You would realize at the end of the day, I have nothing to boast in compared to him. But that's it. That's the diseased, fatal spirituality diagnosis. So here's the question. then: What's the prescription? How do we heal this kind of infected way of doing spirituality? Well, let's look secondly at the prescription. The prescription of healthy spirituality. And I want you to look at David because David gets it here. David gets it. Look at verse 9. It says, David was afraid of the Lord that, that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? How can God connect with me? How can the ark of the Lord come to me? Because he realizes God is infinitely holy, and there's a giant, infinite chasm, and I'm way over here. How can me, absolutely sinful, connect with an absolutely holy God? And you see what he does. He, uh, he even recognizes maybe even Uzzah had good intentions, but good intentions aren't good enough when it's an infinite gap between these two realities. So, in verse 10 and 11, David's big plan to bring the ark into Jerusalem kind of stops. He just puts it in somebody's house named Obed-Edom, awesome name, puts it in this guy's house, and it just kind of sits there for three more months while David can figure out what in the world we're going to do about this situation. If God's infinitely holy, and I am 
infinitely shot through with sin, this is never going to work. So the first step to healthy spirituality is this. You want healthy spirituality? Here's the first step. It's recognizing your utter spiritual poverty. This is what David does. He he has a self-realization where he recognizes, I am spiritually bankrupt. I have nothing to offer God. I am shot through with sin. I am contaminated. I'm the one that's defiled. How in the world can I connect with God if that's who I am? He recognizes his own spiritual poverty. I feel like I, I feel like I reference the song every year, so this is my contractual obligation to annually reference this song now. Um, John Wayne Gacy Jr. by Sufjan Stevens. One of my favorite songs. Uh, if you're familiar with the song and all, it's it's a song about a real life historical serial killer named John Wayne Gacy Jr. who was in the Chicago area in the 70s. And what this guy would do is he would dress up like a clown and he would lure little boys into his apartment and he would rape the boys, he would kill the boys, and then he would store their bodies underneath his floor, like the, uh, in his crawl space underneath his house. Just like horrible, like it's a horrible story. And then when you hear the song with Sufjan's kind of creepy, somber way of like singing it and narrating the story, it's like gut-wrenching and chilling. So, he, so Sufjan kind of sings the song, and he, and he tells the story of John Wayne Gacy Jr. And at the end, he switches from narrator mode into like real-life first-person reflection mode. And here are the last two lines of the whole song. And in my best behavior, I am really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets I have hid. On my best behavior, not my worst, my best behavior, I'm just like this pedophile serial killer. And I've got secrets too. This is the person that has taken that first step. Sufjan Stevens would be the person that has taken the step to say, um, I recognize my spiritual poverty. If you want to take this first step, I mean, it, it is... Um, it, it, it feels so jarring to everything in us to actually admit this is true about me. It feels like death. It, 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 does, it involves a death. It involves you dying to the need in your soul to think of yourself as a good person. That There's that voice in your head and in your soul that says, I am pretty good because I'm not like them. Uh, I do work hard. I do try to be a nice person. I'm not as messed up as them. I don't get trashed like them. I don't have sex so much like them. I don't do X, Y, and Z like them, like them, like them, like them. You have to die to that whole way of thinking if you want to be spiritually healthy. And you have to replace it with a new voice that says, in my best behavior, I'm like that person. The people out there that I despise, the racist bigots, the pedophile serial killers, the terrorists, whoever, they have the same roots of sin in their heart that I do. We share the same spiritual DNA. Theirs just happens to be more matured and let loose than maybe mine is. That's the first step to healthy spirituality. It feels like death to actually admit I got nothing. I'm on that end of the spectrum. In the 1900s, there was this um, kind of essay competition that the New York Times did. Maybe some of y'all have heard about this. Um, they, they posed a question, and they had different intellectuals and academic-type people write in essays to answer the question. And the question was this. What's the main problem in the world? 
What's the biggest problem in the world? And so you just imagine everybody's just like taking a shot at that and getting political and sociological and anthropological. And let's just like, let's, let's answer this question because this is a big question. What's the biggest problem in the world? And so G.K. Chesterton wrote in an essay as well. And G.K. Chesterton was like the C.S. Lewis before C.S. Lewis was even C.S. Lewis. And here was his essay. I can, I can recite to you his whole essay. What's the main problem with the world? Dear sirs, comma, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. That was his essay. Another person that gets it. I'm the problem with the world. I'm the problem with this campus. I'm the problem with this ministry. But to admit that, it, why in the world would you ever admit that about yourself? You remember the movie um, Shawshank Redemption? And so, you know, you know, Andy Dufresne, why in the world did he crawl through that tunnel of feces and urine and vomit and he's gagging the whole way as he's crawling through this sludge. Why is he doing that? Because he knows there's joy and freedom on the other side. To, to admit this about yourself, this first step of, of admitting your spiritual poverty, it feels like you're gagging. It feels like you're dying because you are. But it is, I promise, a tunnel that leads to joy and freedom. But you have to be willing to go through the tunnel. You have to be willing to gag on your own stuff. So what's the second step then? If you're willing to do that, if you're willing to actually admit that about yourself, that I have the same spiritual DNA in my heart as those people, then what's the second step to healthy spirituality? Here's the second step. You receive a sacrifice on your behalf. That's it. You receive a sacrifice on your behalf. Go back to... um, the story. Look at verse 12. David, after these three months of this ark just sitting in Obed-Edom's crib, David brings another entourage to go get the ark and bring it back to Jerusalem. And, and look, at what, look at verse 13. When those who bore the ark of the Lord, notice now they're carrying it. It's bear, they're bearing it on their shoulders. They're actually obeying God's law now. When they had taken, when they had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened am, animal. Take six steps, sacrifice an animal. Take six steps, sacrifice an animal. Why in the Lord is David overseeing the slaughter of animal after animal after animal after animal as they make their way back to Jerusalem? Here's why. Because David knows if God's going to come into our life, there has to be blood. If God is going to come into our life, if we're going to bring him into the center of our society, it's going to be a complete bloodbath. Everybody's going to die unless... God allows for a substitute. Unless somebody dies in our place. You know how they used to kill, like slaughter animals in the Old Testament? They'd bring in a lamb or something, some kind of animal, and, they'd, and the person who was um, overseeing the sacrifice would put their hand on the lamb to signify all of my sin, all of my junk is getting transferred to the animal right now. And then they would take a knife and they'd reach down and they'd slit its throat. And the lamb would fall over and the, it was this visceral experience where you see all of my sin that just got put onto that lamb is now it's now a body that's twitching and blood is pooling that should be me the only reason I'm alive right now is because that thing just died it's really fascinating when Jesus begins his public ministry in John chapter 1 John the Baptist sees him from across the way and says look behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
John sees all the lambs, all the rams, all the animals in the Old Testament were all pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the great substitute who takes all of our sin on himself. It all gets transferred to him and he gets put up on a cross and his throat gets slit. So that when we look at the cross and we see a bloodied, tortured man, we see that's what should have happened to me. I should be the one up there. But the only reason I'm not is because he died so that I might live. Here's how Isaiah chapter 53 puts it. 50, yeah, 53. It says, Surely he took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. We live because he died. And now that infinite gap from us to God is now closed. Closed because God, because Jesus has provided the way. Jesus lost his relationship with his loving father so that we could have it. He died so that we might live. We now have access to God. And when that happens to you, and you actually receive that sacrifice, do you know what that does for you? When you recognize this infinite gap and you say, I'm down here, that gives you incredible humility. You can be shockingly honest about yourself. And at the same time, it gives you incredible, appropriate fear and worship and uh, devotion and reverence to God because you understand that he's down there. And when you see that he has made this mind-bogglingly enormous gulf filled with his blood to make a way to you because you couldn't get to him, that floods you with gratitude, humility, worship, Gratitude, those are the marks of healthy spirituality. It was um, 1996. There were 17 members of the Ku Klux Klan that were, uh, they held a rally in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And all the locals and the residents of Ann Arbor came out to basically protest this KKK rally. And uh, there were police there in riot gear, just waiting. They had tear gas ready. And in the mob, kind of in the in the in the group that was protesting these 17 KKK people, somebody in the crowd noticed that there was a white man wearing a Confederate flag shirt with like a, a Nazi tattoo on him. And so somebody in the crowd shouts, "There's a Klansman in the crowd!" And everybody turns, sees him, and it's like the mob mentality. Everybody rushes him. He tries to run away. They take him to the ground and they start chanting, "Kill the Nazi! Kill the Nazi!" And they start kicking him and pounding him. And an 18-year-old African-American young lady named Keisha Thomas runs over and jumps on top of him and shields him from this crowd. So that now all the punches and the kicks and they took their wooden signs they were banging it on him are now hitting her until the crowd eventually stops. Unbelievable story. In fact, you can see these pictures. Uh, this incident was uh, photographed. It kind of was floating around social media a couple of um, months ago. Unbelievable images that you can see. And the photographer was interviewed about this incident in retrospect. And here's what this photographer said. Talking about Keisha Thomas. She put herself at physical risk to protect someone who, in my opinion, would not have done the same for her. Who does that in this world, he says. You know who does that in this world? Jesus does that in this world. As amazing as it would be to risk your life to protect someone that would never do that from you, for you, Jesus doesn't just risk his life. He gives his life. He stands in the 
bullet's path of his enemies so that we could become his friends. We could become his family. We could become his sons and daughters. We were the ones that were chanting, crucify him, crucify him. We were his enemies. And what does he say about us? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When you see the sacrifice made on your behalf, you know what the result is? Joy and freedom. This is the end of the tunnel. Shawshank Redemption. Look at verse 14. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. Look at 15. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Joy and freedom. That's healthy spirituality. Healthy spirituality is you becoming less and Jesus becoming more. Healthy spirituality is you recognizing your utter spiritual bankruptcy, but you being blown away by his unending grace and mercy for you, his enemy. Healthy spirituality is you uh, being overwhelmed by the gap that is between you and God. Healthy spirituality is is you feeling free to be shockingly honest about yourself. It's you, you fighting the impulse that you've got to be on and you've got to pretend and you've got to, you've got to perform. Healthy spirituality is you growing in a deeper and more reverent and vibrant worship and love for him. Healthy spirituality is you becoming more joyful and more free. And so here's the question. Does that describe you? Joy, freedom, humility, gratitude, worship. If that doesn't describe you tonight, here's your prescription. You can have this. This can happen to you. The prescription is you recognize God's holiness and your sinfulness. Step one. And then step two, you receive the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf. Consider that an invitation for you tonight. Let me pray. Father, I do pray that you would give us the freedom to crawl through the sewer, to die, to that need in us that we have to see ourselves as good better than some of those other people kind of people. And I pray, Father, that even though that makes us gag and we're, we're allergic to that way of thinking, we're allergic to admitting that about ourselves, Father, I pray that you would push us through the tunnel of the sickness and the yuck of our own sin and help us to get to the other side where we see your embrace, your forgiveness, your mercy, your grace, and would that flood us with joy, with freedom, with humility, with worship, with gratitude. Father, so much of our spirituality is that we're just bored. We're, we're spiritually numb. This is all sounds like fun and great, but at the end of the day, what we love and what we crave is something tangible, something more real, something that makes us feel pleasure, something that makes us think in a different way. And so, Father, convince us afresh that you're believable, that you're better, I pray that you would help us to leave this room experiencing you as our treasure and as more precious and sweet to our souls than when we came in. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.